This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk on a beautiful September morning here in Philadelphia. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all of my Wharton Moneyball collaborators and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen to my right, Eric Bradlow to my left, and Adi Weiner straight away. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. We'll be here for the next two hours, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern as usual. You want to jump in, give us a shout, one 844 wharton That's one 942 7866 Or send us an email, radio at Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics, and we're always interested in hearing from you, whether it's a complaint, an observation, a question, a suggestion for our over-under segments when we do those. Whatever you got, at WMoneyBall is not a bad way to reach out to us. Regular show today in that we have two guests, one at the bottom of this hour, another at the top of next hour. Looking forward to both of our guests. A little basketball and a little football. Between now and our first guest segment is an open lines first quarter you guys can jump in here going to be curious to see where the boys take us what has caught their eyes in the world of sports good morning guys how are you good morning good great lots of great sports lots of lots of things happen i I dialed up uh espn last night and i was shocked because something like five of the six headline stories were baseball it's like they had a moment midweek moment to get all the baseball in i turned on espn late last night and i looked in the column i thought i was looking at the football scores (laughs) <laughs> 20 to 5 yeah. the Oakland I yes. mean 12 to 11 the Yankees by the way has, <laughs> has a team ever had a what was the swing between the Astros win on Monday night and their loss on Tuesday night it was like a 14 and then a 13 so a 27 run swing yeah differential yeah. They, yeah. Amazing. they won by 14 and then they lost by 13 I believe something like that it can't be that any team's ever had a 27 run swing <laughs> I, I would argue that you're probably right. I mean, right. it has that, to be. That's a, good. Well, we can almost oh guess. Well, I would say about 95%. Although How weird stuff happen? happened in the 80s, as in the 1880s. Well, so, and yeah. I remember <laughs> there was that one Yankees game where they... They, they lost to Cleveland 21-1 to or something. Right, and so maybe next, maybe day, next game, game you right. just check in yeah, on yeah, those guys. Yeah, then they, <laughs> yeah well, then if you lose by 20, or all you before, win right, by right, four the next night. It's not that big a deal. But it does. we see these 15s and 20s in a way that we... This, I mean, even little league games aren't fifteen and twenty to nothing. No, I, t- I mean, I took my w- wife to the baseball game, the Phillies game last night for the first time in a couple of years. She's like, "Oh wow, they hit a lot of home runs now." And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, even home runs that's that how baseball actually, works now. Even home runs that don't actually leave the park." Yeah, last night it was an in, a, inside, inside the, the park, park. homework. That, yeah, it was pretty what, exciting. What game? He actually, uh, Phillies, the Phillies, Phillies, Phillies yeah, against really? Braves. Yeah. That 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 would is that the sum of all the excitement? That's, that's more than all the other excitement in the game, probably. That seven seconds. An inside the park home run surprise. I think seconds. it might have been the first time I've ever seen one live. 
I still haven't seen a triple play live. That's also very yeah, that's, rare. That's, that's really kind of on the bucket list, I suppose. You know, but but I think what's interesting about baseball, and if you just give me just a, a second, um, whatever you need, whatever you need, you can it's, have multiple it's, seconds. It's the massive explosion in offense this year, and and of course the massive composite or, or counterbalance with the pitching, where there's lots of swings and misses and home runs, and front and center to me is what's how the athletes are being developed. And I think that's what's being changed, and it's had changed in the last couple of years. The idea that you build an athlete, a professional baseball, not the way that used to be done and always has been done, which is play lots of baseball, but actually go into, the, into an, a facility and learn to be a better baseball player. And I think this is a, a profound change because, as we all know about baseball, what is its major one detraction? It's a lot of standing around. And from the purpose of learning to be better at it, that lot of standing around is a complete unproductive use of time. Right. And that what's happened, and the Astros led the way with this, is we're going to take you off the field, we're going to put you in a facility, we're going to you know measure you up so we can get immediate feedback, we can figure out what's working for you and what's not, and fix it, diagnose it and fix it, and become a better player. And now the other teams are doing this, and they're actually trying to bring this at every level of play. I wonder to what extent development was an in-season thing in the past. In some in some sports, like for example hockey, once you make the major leagues, the top division, you're not really they're not doing developmental stuff. At least historically, they have it. They do all the developmental stuff at the minor leagues, and with baseball playing 165 games a year, there's not as much space for development. So it's a, it's in somehow it's not that surprising they haven't worried about it so much regular season. But are you saying that even now? In the regular season, they continue to work with people on their swing and no. Pitch I think delivery. Adi's point's a great one, which is even if you just forget that the training is different, which it certainly is, it's more because you know that three-hour game you could you could have been playing a simulated game, or you could have been in the training facility for three hours, being tracked by some track man or some other thing, and now you're spending three hours purely on hitting as opposed to waiting for 15 minutes for the ball to come your way for you to catch right. something. It's, an, it's yeah, a more and, efficient and, and, use of training time. And, and, and I think we kind of, uh, we, we forget that, you know, mechanics and little tweaks in mechanics are so Huge big a difference. part oh, of these guys' game, and, and to be kind of able to sort of when you have a mechanical flaw be able to kind of through repetition correct that right. or whatever right there as opposed to having to wait until your turn in the bag well, and figure it out yourself no actually the word is and we can reflect on on the research about learning which is it's deliberate practice mm -hmm. yeah. and i think in many athletes when they get to a certain level they don't engage in this deliberate practice under the tutelage of someone who's going to guide them and help them fix what the problem is one of the things about deliberate practice is the importance of feedback it's not yep. just doing the mm -hmm. the repetitions but actually getting feedback on how well you executed them. What's interesting about Shane's observation about home runs in baseball, a couple things struck me, because I was at not last night's game, but the game before. First of all, the Braves have a player that's something like 5'7", 155 pounds, and he's got 23 home runs this season. <laughs> that was interesting. So one second, how, how big is the second baseman for the Astros? Uh, Altuve? Yeah. About that. About, about okay. that size okay. as well. Right. And Yeah, 5'6", even. So what's interesting about uh, this is that, but you also notice it's not like anyone's breaking the home run record this year. So no. what I think you're noticing is you're seeing that, obviously, the bottom end of the distribution... Uh, it would be interesting just to look at the shape of the distribution, because yep. the bottom end's clearly coming up, which is obviously will ra is raising the average. But it's the top end, 
I don't know if anyone, now that Yelich is hurt, I'm not sure anyone's going to hit 50 home runs this year. If it is, someone... Alonzo is close. He's at 47. Okay. And so he's a he... big dude. All right. So he's likely to get, to, he's yeah, likely to, get yeah. to low 50s. But again, it's not rare for there to be one player yes. to no, hit 50 right. home runs. So we're seeing the bottom end come up. We're not particularly seeing the top end come up. And it's just, it's just a very different distribution. And if you don't yeah. have 20 home runs, that's almost like an un, not unheard right. of, but like, even the five seven hundred and fifty pound guys have twenty it, home runs is it, now. Is it not surprising that if if things are going to elevate that much, what you're descri- describing is just kind of an overall elevation? Yeah, would, I mean, it, it, mostly, it mostly is a mean shift just because the ball is clearly juiced. W- wouldn't and, give, no? Give, I mean, it is. But I, it, shame, but given a mean shift, wouldn't you expect some no, no. outliers to the in, on yeah, the right? Yeah, the weird end? things that's my happen point. in yeah. tails, and, and tails aren't necessarily as predict exactly how the tails fall aren't as uh, isn't as think predictable the are, as the pictures have compensated too. So it may be harder to hit that many home runs. In some capacity. Oh, well, hold on. That's a very different story. Well, yeah, because, I mean, obviously the pitchers are doing as best as they can to yeah, prevent you from swinging. Yeah, we're not seeing a real spike in things like intentional walks and stuff like that. No, that's like because that. philosophically they've decided that that's a bad idea. And, yeah. and it's a triumph well, of no, analytics no, 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 walk t- away Tell from. us how it works that you'd see an overall mean shift and yet some pitcher adaptation while yielding a mean shift against them somehow trims the right edge. Well, this is actually an argument that Stephen Jay Gould made on and I show it to my Moneyball class, and he's talking it's a about... variance thing, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a variance thing. So he'll claim, he, and he's actually right, that historically the batting average has, has hovered around 260. That really has, even in, back in the 20s, and, and it's been between 255 and 265, and it kind of hovered around there. But you used to see immense spread where 400 was common back in the even earlier, but even 400 was possible. But this was, the, his whole mission here was to explain the disappearance of the 400 hitter. Right, and, he, yeah. and what he was essentially saying was that the spread of talent, the top end of the distribution is, hasn't really changed. Right. You know, the Alonzo, the, the, the judges, they're as great a home run hitter, they're about the same level as a Mantle and a Babe Ruth, roughly. But what's happened is is that the pitching difference between the pitching that and the balance is different because they were four or five standard deviations away, but everything has sort of shifted up. And so they're now probably about two standard deviations me, away. And so to get to four, I mean, there just isn't as much variance But let me give anymore. you another explanation. I, I like that explanation. Let me give you another one. So let's say Aaron Judge, even in, not in the area of the juiced ball, he hits a ball, it's going out anyway. It's just a matter of whether he's going to hit it 400 or 460. So you could make an argument that what's the reason why the right tail hasn't gone up is it's the 320-foot hit that now goes 360 yeah. that goes over the fence. The 400-foot home run was all red. The big home run hitter, it doesn't help them. They hit yeah. it farther, but they don't hit more no, of them. Or they do at the margin, but not enough to make it 10 more home yeah, but runs. I think actually, that's probably that the right answer true. there. I think those are, those are, but I also think that these the terrific home run hitters are striking out in unbelievable rates, and they didn't used to. They struck out a lot, but well, back yeah, but then it was might 100, just sort of see, like, if, if you essentially have a swing for the fences kind of attitude, <laughs> right. there's still going to be an upper bound on how many home right. runs you hit because the pitchers are professionals. And you and, miss. And you're, you're, so maybe we're sort of starting to capture kind of like the inherent sort of like max on home run rate or something like that from these big guys. But as you sort of said, now you can, for, for the guys that weren't, don't have the amount of power that... Aaron Judge has some of their like kind of long fly ball rate is now getting turned into so, home runs by right. ball. So on this front, a big injury yesterday, right? Yelich. So yes. presumably one of the more exciting guys oh, in the league. God. And then how no, much it's a this... real loss for the pennant run and everything. Well, tell tell us about that. What is it? This is the these are the Milwaukee Buck Brewers. Brewers. Um, so what's the impact of losing a player like that for the team? 
Oh, it's huge. I mean, like, I, I, I mean, he was by. It's, but I mean, he's essentially the MVP, right? So, I mean, it, well, give I, us like, give us the analytics take. Like, what, what was the expected change in either you know wins between the rest of the season, the likelihood of advancing in the playoffs? I know you think that's just a coin flip, but they're in this wild card race with the Cubs, probably among other teams. Mm-hmm. The Diamondbacks are in there as well. Heck, a lot of people are in there. The Phillies and Phillies. There's a lot of folks in that NL wild card race. What does it do to their chances? Well, what, I mean, if you, think, if you think about him having like you know like a six seven war season or something like that, which he, I probably was on pace for. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna, you're one gonna, eighth of the season left. Yeah, and so you're gonna chop off at least a you know roughly a win. Oh, roughly a roughly win. A, roughly it all depends, of course, who comes in to take his place. War is theoretical. You're getting a, a oh freebie. yeah, that's true. So we don't even know how deep their bench is to really know. Okay. But in, in, in principle, it, it's going to cost them about a win. And, Between but, now and the end of the season, and, and that's a that, I mean at least. Okay. Theoretically, yeah. this is exactly what we're well, supposed to measure. Right well, let me ask you a question. Right right no, no, this is a great question. <laughs> is this a good, let's call it validation check or empirical check of war? So let's imagine that let's imagine we love statistics that we come up with to be predictive. We'd like them, and so let's imagine we take all the players that are injured, compute the expected wins at the time of the injury. Now the player's gone. Now there's some observed difference between their expected wins at the time and observed. And now we actually calibrate it. I know Adi loves the word calibration. We calibrate and say, a team that was supposed to win one less game, what did they do? A team that was supposed to win two less, what did they do? Why don't we, have you ever seen where they've tried to validate war using actual replacements? Well, I just think we know how stochastic, I mean, the the thing about about being an expected value, there's a lot of variance, right? So, I mean, yeah, you you could look at it and say like, oh, you know, from now until the end of the season, oh my goodness, the but Brewers I'm going fell. To, I'm going to bin people. I'm not going to do it one for one. Off the pace they were at, and therefore I'm not going to do it but, for one player. Shane, no, but you could do it for all players. Right. Just I, I don't mean, think you. Well, sure, you, you get could. a big enough sample. Yeah, this is. I mean, we, yeah, this you is could how do we, that. So a couple things. This is exactly what we first tried to do in football to understand the value of individual players. Is to cons- where you got to get exogenous variation from somewhere. Injuries are kind of the only place you can do it. So you ask, how does the team's performance? differ when you know their best wide receiver gets knocked out so that's that's about as good as you can do Mm -hmm. now there is a problem with it because teams don't just continue on the same path and opponents don't just continue on the same path when a guy like that goes out there's this compensation of some kind so this is a knockout strategy and it has some benefits but there are some downsides to it i I would predict it would work very well it's going to work better in baseball than another it's a lot of i think football is a very different thing but with baseball we we know what the differential is you're going to get a certain runs specifically it's a late season injury where it's you know their capacity to do some, something, quote unquote, right. something the, the, about it is somewhat limited. I'm going to I'm going to just follow up on your late season. Point. What really is it? What the the drawback of war is it? It's it's essentially centered statistic, and to win a championship to get into the playoffs, it's a diminishing return. So the va- the extra win you need it when you're at 92, 93 is harder to get than when you're mm. at 81, mm. and and uh, so. It's a devastating loss to the, to the Brewers because it's hard to get those extra wins when you're competing against the the other great teams. Or and, yeah, or another way yeah. of kind of saying that is that you know I mean it, let, let's assume he costs us costs them as expected about one win this injury. That one win is especially important to the Milwaukee. Well, here's Brewers another way right now, just another because quick, of where they are at in the standings. Or just another way sure. to view it is how much. Let's even say the Brewers end up the wild one of the wild cards in the NL. How much does him not being there lower your – let's go back to the Shane Jensen coin flipping rule. How much do you diminish Milwaukee's coin, conditional on them making the playoffs, which they haven't yet, how much do you diminish their coin because he's not there? 
Let's see how I much mean, of a in any one game by like your... maybe a few percent. No, but over a seven-game series now. So let's imagine they yeah, put. They make have the... to get through a one-game. Let's series imagine first, they make so, that wild yeah. card. If they're one of the final eight, do you give them much less than twelve point five percent because they're best player by no, far? You're not no. much less. Not much less. Right, because to be a pure coin flipper, you don't care. I mean, to well, say everything's right. a coin flip is to kind of dismiss rosters anyway. So now you can't yeah. all of a sudden care yeah, about the roster. Yeah, and I mean, roster. just to kind of, I guess, uh, I mean, maybe expand a little bit on my coin flip theory. <laughs> my coin flip theory is really that I don't think I would push any matchup beyond, like, say, 55-45. That's about as much as I would do. Like, you know, Yankees-Twins... I will put it 90-10 cuz the Twins <laughs> exist in order to, to lose be the Yankees in the but playoff. You know that is just a historical but I think fact. The, the analogy but other is than that, the analogy is a good one. it's going to change its probabilities but not nearly as much as what happens in football. And I'm going to segue if you guys will per- permit me. On uh, on Sunday morning I'm sitting at my preparing let my it, lecture. Let it let it be recorded yeah. that Audie is just taking Audie us from baseball segment. to I, football. I do because I want to make a direct analogy because the loss of Yelich probably changes his odds but not so much. And as you wouldn't want it to, to expect it to. But on Sunday morning, I'm putting together my lecture, and I'm doing an example using the odds, the betting odds, on New England's probability of winning the Super Bowl, which I, Vegas Insider was when I was, maybe it was a Saturday night number, uh, sometime it probably was put up Saturday, was 650 to 100, which is puts it about 13.3% unadjusted for the, the, uh, the cut of the, the casino. So just throw that out. It's interesting. The number I had heard was 20%. Oh, well, let me tell you what it is now. <laughs> All right, so it was 13 point. That was the bet, 650 to 100. It a little low. Uh, it does, but this is what the number was on Saturday. Well, remember, remember that a lot of folks thought the Saints were the favorite coming in. So it's uh, that's on the NFC side of things. On the AFC side, who who is stealing their probability? Chiefs. Chiefs. The Chiefs. Oh, Chiefs. That's why They're it's in a the lower right? yeah. Chiefs, Ravens. Right, so, yeah. But what's interesting is, is that two events have happened since then. They picked up a star wide receiver, and they destroyed an opponent. What is it now? Three to one. Really? It Three to one. High. How much of it came from Antonio Brown, though? That I don't know because I didn't check yeah. in the middle. But but I believe. But so I don't know how much it is. But yeah. think about a shift from six point five to yeah. one, thirteen point three down to twenty five percent. It doubled. That's outrageous, and this is a rare. I mean, especially for a you wide never receiver. In, I mean, in, in, uh, I, I, I don't. So, I don't buy that. Also, I, the, I, will, I will say that they jumped in our power rankings from number two to number one, but more substantively, it was a two point jump. That's huge on one game. Now things are a little more fluid early in the season, but to jump two points is is a is what, a nice impressive win. Let me ask you a question. You know, it's only been one game, but what odds would I have to give you to take anybody else in the AFC East? Fifty <laughs> to one? No, I'm I just saying. Still... Given what you saw, we we know the Dolphins yeah. aren't winning the division. We know that, right? I mean, oh, I mean, I mean, as far you're... as the Patriots winning, that's what I meant. The, the division. division, yeah, they're in the playoffs. Right, okay, guys. okay, okay. Let's just I want I want to tease this out because you're going to be right. you're going to be a yeah. subject. Yeah. Can you give me? Because what I've been showing my sure. class is how to take someone's bet and it, and reverse it and get their probability. So, so Shane, what's your bet? Oh, I'm. I, I'm. Well, he's I, asking I, how I, much I, you would take before you stopped to take the other side. Well, take the other side. How I'd much rather, you need to take I'd the rather, other side? I'd rather operate on the probability scale. To be honest, I don't. Oh really think yeah, on the yeah. Odd but scale. people have an easier, easier time with the but, with the bet also, scale. But that induces risk tolerance as well. Yeah. What you're doing? Yeah, because well, only think about it in terms of uh, of uh, dollar amounts that are just you know. Obviously, we're not going to be talking about a million dollar bet. That's risk. risk well, no, 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 no. But Kate's points important. Especially real quickly on yeah, a bet sure. like this, which you're going to you're going to require a lot of money to 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 compensate for taking these other three teams, right? And so well, you actually wants, are going to get into 
No, I, I, I would do it for a small amount. Let's say I'll bet you five dollars right now if you ah. give me twenty to one odds. You know why? I don't. I have low utility for that particular five dollar bill in my pocket. But man, if I win the consumption utility, yeah, I'm, I'm going to yeah. have for a long period of time. I'll be talking about that day for the rest of my life, where I bet you five dollars <laughs> on three awful teams, and they one of them shocked the All Patriots right, yeah, and won the this yeah, year. There's so the many wrong, interesting I issues. Had the wrong side. Yeah, you do, because um, we're, we're, he's asking how much. I mean, how how many how much money did he need to to bet on the yeah, other or, side? Or, 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 it's I not mean, a big bet. He wants the little bit. Yeah, right? he wants the little side. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and and I mean, I mean, even with Antonio Brown on the Patriots, I can't imagine them being more probable than the field in the AFC. In right? the AFC, oh, oh yeah, interesting. AFC. All right, so, you, so I you're agree actually, with that. At right. the end of the day, you're thinking so it's one to one. Round. Yeah, that's much more interesting than the division question. Right. Oh, this is the AFC no, title. No, I mean the right division. Now. I mean, the, I, I'm willing yeah, to let's skip, the division skip the division is over. Question. So, I mean, KC, what did y'all think about KC's performance? I mean, everyone's I mean, the story on the, the naive story on the Chiefs has been here they come. The the kind of savvy, supposedly savvy story as well. You have to expect some regression to the mean, and that defense is weak anyway. So we see him one game against the Jags. Any updating on the Chiefs? Uh, I mean, yes, in the sense that, uh, you know, their their offense has kept rolling, basically. I mean, the Jags do have a good defense, or at least purportedly have a good defense, and mm-hmm. Mahomes still kind of carved them up. I mean, you know, it does seem like KC maybe still has some of the defensive issues from last year rolling over to this year mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I, I look at that game, and I do update my information to say that I'm a little bit more confident that KC is kind of no, what we I, thought they were so last year. So let me update. Let me just say, look— <laughs> I don't see in the. There's nothing I saw in the AFC right now that suggests it won't be Chiefs Patriots again. At mm-hmm. least right now. So you're not impressed with the Ravens 59 yeah. whatever, whatever. No, I watched almost all of that game and I oh was not goodness. that impressed. You but, I mean, they were playing a high school well, this, team. Yeah, I think they were. I mean, the guys were wide open all over the field. But let me say what I was most impressed with, and I'm going to say it again. The last year, the Patriots were not a great. They weren't bad. They were not a great offensive team. They became a great defensive team. You can beat the Steelers, but they gave up three points to the Steelers. Yeah. Again, this is Bill Belichick's dream come true. That's a defensive-minded team right now. I understand you have the greatest quarterback of all time. You have Tom Brady. You have a bunch of good receivers. But that team plans on winning with defense this year, and they're a very good defensive team. And yeah. they remember, they held the Rams, who were averaging 35 points a game, to yeah. three points in the Super Bowl. I watched a lot of this week's game against the Steelers, who are not an inept offensive team. Well, talk about three that. points. Well, but it. let me just point out before we launch into that that yes, I mean I watched that Super Bowl too is very impressive, and the first half of that KC game, the AFC Championship game, was very impressive defensively. It's just where they play KC or some team again the playoffs, you could get that second half team. You know they. They're, they but they're not giving up 40 to impressive. Kansas City. They might give up 24 to Kansas City or 30 to Kansas City. They gave City. up mid-30s to Kansas City twice last year. But not in the playoffs. <laughs> no, they got over 30 you got, you got to you got to settle this for me. I, I, my understanding is, and it's growing, is that, that defense is just subordinate to offense in football and NFL, and you're, you're all arguing subordinate, defense. Subordinate, but it's probabilistic. Sure, but so how much is, the de- is, is our championships going to be won on defense They now? certainly have been. So oh, they many. certainly have been in very recent On uh, my memory. team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they won yeah. that entirely on defense. The Ravens. The, the Denver Broncos. Denver Broncos. Four years ago. So, it, I mean, look. Yeah, if we Seattle, say Manning Seahawks, was, was I mean, through. I guess Seattle was more well-balanced. Oh, here's offense. I know, but think about it. Think about it as, you know, basically, you know, coefficients and equation. And this is far too much of a simplification. But if you have a power ranking for a team's offense and a power ranking for a team's defense, you might ask, 
what weight to put on each of these right. rankings to come to an overall. And that weight's going to be something. I mean, this is really, really rough, but that weight's going to be something like 0.6 and 0.4. So it's maybe 50% more, maybe 35% more, something like that on the offense. But that still leaves room for a dominant defense to be hugely right, influential. like a two standard deviation defense can easily carry easily. like but, uh, but a, a an average or no. But I would you agree it's not compensatory offense. in the following sense? If I told you right now at the end of the season, the Kansas City Chiefs were going to have an average defense, you would have to raise your chances significantly of them winning the Super Bowl. It's not just a linear like I yeah. like what Kate's saying: well, point six times offense plus point four mm-hmm. times defense. But at some point. If Kansas City's defense is good enough, I think it's more of a threshold than just a linear. If they or, end or, up with or, a, or a, a, a minimally acceptable defense, I'm not trying yeah. to rank the teams. I'm trying to say their likelihood of winning. Those are different questions. I think if they have an average defense, their chances of winning the Super Bowl would be tremendously higher. Okay. Right now, we just think they have a bottom third defense, not a not an average. I'm trying one. to unpack this, and I think the issue is that. For, you you got to be careful with regression coefficients because regression coefficients don't tell you this, the effect size because it depends on the, the units of the variable you're dealing with. So my, my, well, I think if well, I could I'm turn it into... I'm going to standardize Well, if you standard... So are you saying... That's the, the question. Are you standardizing the variables? Yeah, of course. And then you're doing point... Because I would argue because that... Because I'm making an abstract yeah, point. Well, I can do, right, right, yeah. And I mean, so, but I, I, I think it's easier to think about this on the, like a standard deviation kind of scale. Right, because right? I'm actually thinking that the, 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 the variance in points, and that's ultimately what matters, right? because that's what wins games, is bigger on the offensive side than the variance there is in the defensive sort of point ranking. So if you convert mm-hmm. the, the power rankings on defense and power ranking on offense to points, mm-hmm. I think there's a much bigger variance on the, on the offensive side. And that's why you're kind of compensating for that by putting a lower weight on the on the defense. You know what's interesting? It's rare to be test, a two-standard. I mean, what, a two-standard deviation is not going to be a beat. Adi, we have a, a test of this. We have an easy offense. test of this, by the way. I, I, don't, I haven't seen the data. Maybe you guys have. In fantasy football... Do oh, people, wait, 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 wait. Do people choose the offense first or do they choose the defense first? Because that is all about the variance. That's like, right. You don't choose something that has low variance first. Because you need to win and in I'm guaranteed. I'm pretty sure offenses are picked way before mm-hmm. defenses. But a, well, yeah, but I mean, there's... There's a scoring system, of course. There's like matters. 20 positions. Like, I know like there's different positions. But I'm saying... De- I know, but defense isn't picked no, that that's, early. That's there's true. low variation in fantasy. There's mm-hmm. low variation. That's true. Well, speaking of offense and variation, nobody's impressed with the Ravens 59. Oh, I'm impressed. I mean, I mean, I mean again, I don't... Jackson uh, looks he, great, he had right? no pressure... And his receivers are wide open, but Lamar Jackson still hit them. I mean, right. he did. I mean, he looked. Wait, 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 wait. You clearly are. So tell me exactly why. No, no, I didn't. I didn't see enough of it to know. I, oh, it, I, I mean, no, what, I, it's more a question. I want to be. Yeah. But we just don't know me, how tragically know bad. Week three, no, no, no. They play Arizona Tragic- this week. I'll compare oh, oh, oh. how tragically bad Miami. All right. So this, yes. I mean, this is a, this is. I've, 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 Kate, you're a wonderful lecturer, and one of the favorite <laughs> lectures that you gave to one of my classes was the overreaction there is to one game. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just, uh, for the, our listeners can't see this, but but Massey Peabody r- rankings are up, and, and Baltimore went from middling to yeah. star yeah. in no, I, one I, weekend. That's a That seems to me, uh, excuse my I- ignorance here, as a massive overreaction. Well, well, no. I mean, this thing is calibrated. I mean, we're, I, we're, I know, we're, the whole game. point is built not to overreact. <laughs> what is true is... We we don't have in the model the Miami front office and the Miami locker room. And if you look at the betting line right now, because New England's going down there this weekend, you can't get that line high enough. No. I mean, it's, it's just continued to float up. It's probably hit 20 before the weekend. It's in the high teens right now. Yeah. We can't get there in our model. So 
we 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 haven't surely we our, to the extent that we overreacted to week one is because we haven't sufficiently discounted Miami. So we give Baltimore probably too well, much credit. And, for what and they it, did, it, it is hard to kind of know. I mean, you're going to need multiple games whether or yeah. not Miami. Well, let me is. say, I, mean, I watched look like a I high watched school a, team. Out I watched there. a lot of the Ravens Dolphin <laughs> game yeah. on Sunday, and here's what I'll say. I'll say exactly what you said, Shane. Lamar Jackson hit every throw a good quarterback in the NFL is supposed yeah. to hit. When a guy was open, he would hit the person in stride. When he had to scramble, move his feet, and then hit somebody, he did that. Yeah. So, yeah, you could say he's playing a high school team. I'll tell you, I watched Jameis Winston on Sunday. Oh, he doesn't man. make half the throws yeah. that Lamar Agreed. Jackson Agreed. made in that and, game. And if he Lamar was... Jackson is accurate, look out, because, I mean... Yeah, that's the one thing that was holding them, them His back. His throws were so, beautiful. Yeah. So we've talked about the AFC, and we talked about the tragically not interesting AFC East. The a the NFC East, really interesting. So the Always Eagles got out of the gate really uh, sketchily in the first half and then came on like gangbusters. And then later in the day, Cowboys, whoo, the Cowboys, people are talking about that new offense. And what what's your take on the NFC South? No, I'm offense? very excited. I mean, I mean, especially, I mean, as a uh, the Cowboys fans must be super excited because it kind of seems like, you know, I mean, they did – over, change over an offensive coordinator this year. Scott Linehan's out, and I think Kellen Moore is, is, yes, the, that's is correct. the new coordinator. And, I mean, based on the first game, again, overreaction to the first game, <laughs> yeah, but right. it looked exciting. I mean, it was exciting to just watch Dallas because yeah, Dallas, I feel like, has had very unimaginative yeah. play calling on yeah, offense yeah, yeah. for a couple years. Let me just make a psychological point yeah. that it's easier to justify rationalized overreaction, therefore it's you're more prone to it whenever there's some some non-stationarity argument you can yep. make. So there's a different piece now. Mm -hmm. Then you can tell a story. There's a different piece. And so you, you're allowed to kind of update in irrational ways because the system might be different. And so non-stationarity, potential non-stationarity, perceived non-stationarity, facilitates that kind yeah. of that kind of a motivated I, reasoning. But I, I think Shane's point's also a good one about that whole division, which is a lot of people are talking, obviously, about the Saints, and they should, and their 58-yard field goal miraculous win. They're t a lot of people are talking about the Rams, obviously, I have no. Why can't the the winner of that division, whether it's the Eagles or the Giants, like uh, Eagles or the uh, Cowboys, why can't they win the Super Bowl? Oh, they the absolutely Eagles, I mean, can. And maybe this is just kind of walking around, you know, because we live in Philadelphia. I feel like the Eagles, especially, are getting a lot of Super Bowl buzz right now. I they they have deserved. I mean, deserved. I don't know. I, think I don't think Massey Peabody is so excited about. We're not. We're not the there Eagles. yet. We have just to be specific about it We're, we haven't like 10 they were 12 last week so we bumped them up a little bit but the, you know to be fair there's a there are a lot of good looking teams in that kind of tier but yeah the, we, we you know that uh, that may be hung, they may be dragged down a little bit by the, how they performed at the beginning of the game but I agree the buzz is there locally I don't yeah and, I mean I think I think the big uncertainty with the Eagles and the reason we don't push them higher is that we'd like to see a full season of uninjured Carson Wentz if that guy can right. stay healthy What's the then, prior on that? But, but, I mean the, the, the different <laughs> if, you're so looking for, if you're looking for non-stationarity to facilitate your optimism with the Eagles yeah I mean Deshaun Jackson yes I mean that was ridiculous yeah and electric it really wasn't to have that threat on top of what was already a pretty functional offense is, is yeah, pretty, it's like Anto adding Antonio Brown on top yeah, of whatever yeah. was a functioning offense. By, by the way the to, to buttress Eric's point about the NFC the market has the Rams and Saints at plus 500 to make the Super Bowl yeah and uh, Cowboys down at plus seven but the, I mean look, it's early so uh, markets maybe are doing a, a better job of, of and the Eagles aren't even listed there right the Eagles yeah. running in that top yep. three Eagles are first. Oh, 450. They're right in there. There's a lot know. of concentration at the top. Yeah. So, so, so it's essentially a, a very small race. If, 
Well, the, the well, injuries are meaningful. But, you know, but we know that's not true. But you can't bet It's going to get wider as injuries <laughs> yeah, start yeah, piling yeah. up. Teams yeah. are going to move around. All right, fellas, that has been our first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Wednesday mornings. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my three faculty colleagues, Wharton Moneyball collaborators and good friends, Shane Jensen, Nadi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. We are rolling into the second segment. You guys can still join us if you'd like. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hey, I thought about uh, Margie from Mississippi. Southern Miss, it's a kind of a random college football game. But Southern Miss is playing Troy, I think, which I think it was being in Southern Alabama. It's in Alabama anyway. So Southern Miss-Troy seems like it ought to be a good football game. And I think the line is tight. Margie's a Southern Miss girl. Maybe she can inform us how that there's not a lot to look at on the college football slate this weekend all right fellas so bear with me southern miss troy might be maybe marge will let us know email us business radio at sirusxm.com business radio at sirusxm.com or hit us up on twitter at w moneyball is our handle up there at w moneyball we have a guest in this next hour he is a return guest but it's been a long time since we talked to seth partner seth is nba and basketball um writer for the athletic great new sports writing outlet the athletic i say new it's about a year old now he resides in milwaukee partly because he was for a number of years the director of basketball research for the milwaukee bucks he just left this off season to just go be a writer done with this team business we're going to hear a little bit about that decision seth good morning to you morning how you doing doing real fine doing real fine where are you calling in from this morning I'm calling from Milwaukee. I was remembering the last time I was uh, talking to you was I was still in Alaska, so it was 4:30 my time. So it's a little bit, a uh, little bit more humane. That is, that's great. You know, we had in that first year, I felt like we had multiple, not just West Coast, we had multiple like the northwest corner of Canada kind of guests in the wee hours of the morning, and you must have been one of those. I'm glad it's not quite as inconvenient for you this time. But um, we're delighted to talk to you, especially because it has been that long, and you have had this really interesting journey. You turned us on to Nylon Calculus, um, I think, probably about back that time, and we've been following you guys since, and we pimp, you, we pimp those guys when we can. Nylon Calculus is a great source for basketball analytics. But you did that for a little while, and then you moved in to in-house with the Bucks, and you've only recently came out of that to, to write for The Athletic. Can you talk to us a little bit about that journey? What was it like, why, how they found you or how you found them? It moved you from Alaska to Milwaukee, which is a big deal. And then after a few years, you've decided you want to go back to outside of that, outside of the building. So can you to walk us through that journey a little bit? Sure. So the first part, um, it's, it's one of those things. I think that other people on, uh, um, uh, on your show have talked about this, but I get questions all the time from, from students and, and, and people who are interested in how do you get into sports analytics? How, how do you get one of those jobs? Well, like the, the, uh, the way to get the job is to do the job. I, I kind of, uh, started writing about basketball, um, uh, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. And it was right when the NBA was starting to release some of their, their tracking data publicly. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know, not being falsely modest or anything, I, I did interesting things with it and, and put it out in, in public first on, on my own, uh, on my own website. And then, um, kind of nylon calculus was, I was one of the founding writers there and, and, um, some other places, uh, Vice Sports, Washington Post, a couple other places, uh, just kind of started getting noticed there. And then from those bigger platforms, uh, people with teams read those those websites. Right, and, right. And they started to reach out to me and and kind of uh, had 
conversations with a number of teams, and and the one the opportunity that kind of worked out was was here in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's 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 kind of how how that half of the the journey went. And mm-hmm. then, um, did that for for three uh, three seasons in a bit, and um, I, I wrote about this on the Athletic. Kind of uh, two main things that I'll talk about about why I kind of decided to go back to public is um, inside a team you're so monofocused that it's some of the discussion elements are lost. The discovery is is not as prevalent because you're so focused on like competitive advantage. So give and us that, a, give us an example when you say monofocus, what might you be focused on for a day or a week that might be narrow if you were outside of that building? Um, you know, specific instances where, you know, how often are, you know, drawing a foul or, or turning the ball over in this specific instance or okay. something like that. Okay. Very, very in the weeds kind of, uh, specific it can be yep and you know and it's it's also it's much more i would say production versus research um uh so it's not it's not always about learning new things it's about mm. uh implementing the things that 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 have already been discovered seth and real, real quickly what is what is production and implementation look like as an analyst inside a basketball team um, you know, any number of, of presentational ways, whether it's, you know, uh, internal apps, uh, you know, reference sheets, reports. Okay. Um, um, yeah. It's, uh, You're saying contributions and meetings. It's not um, new insights. It's the communication of those insights in some way and, and, and getting them in front of players, trainers, managers, coaches, whatever. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And I would, I would say that, that at least in basketball, uh, my impression is for the most part that, uh, direct to players is is less common. Obviously, there are teams that are starting to have uh, an- analytics presence directly on the coaching staff, but it's there's so much information coming at at players that that having that stuff kind of funnel through through coaches is the is the is quite frequently the more appropriate way to do it rather yep. than you know trying to trying to get things in in, in people's heads and, yep. and and have them not be able to execute you know. Uh, I think you, uh, Paul Puzlesny, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about it's, you know, the snap happens, you got to go. You have to, like, there isn't time for thought. Right. It just has to right. happen. Right. And and so, um, funneling that information down to you know one or two things for a player to think about is that's that's you know that's that's why the coaches get the big bucks. But Seth, this is Eric Brother. I want to ask you though, in basketball though, it seems a little bit different because there are so many plays in basketball like. Coach, should I foul? There's 15 seconds left on the clock. We're up by three. You know, uh, should I go for this play? Should I go for a two-pointer here or a three-pointer? Should I allow the guy just to make a layup here? Or should I, you know, it would seem like in basketball and endgame situations, the if you'd like, there's there's so you can write out the decision tree, and it seems like in basketball that. It would be good to have someone on the bench in real time that can say the odds say for us to do this or that. Is that, are that not right? Um, there's there's something to that. I would say that that those are actually a pretty small slice of decisions, and those tend to be, you know, oh well, you know, we cost ourselves, you know, half our win probability. Okay, well, we went from by shooting a two instead of a three, we had a you know a one percent chance to win the game instead of a two percent chance. So these are. Those are, are kind of yes, meaningful and important, but uh, relative to kind of the overall flow of the game, um, they get maybe more attention 
because of the the, the, the the high profile nature, I would say. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, you know, it's the, the analogy I like to use is a lot of basketball coaching is like cooking, where you know, pinch of this, a dash of that, uh, cook it till it's done. Uh, whereas some of those situations, <laughs> that's uh, that's one kind of how to play, like the uh, it's it's kind of gone out of vogue, but that the hack a shack style, like yeah. like how to how to implement that uh, stuff like that is like baking, um, and that's yeah, there is a, a recipe you can you can sort of follow in those situations, but um, um, but at the same time, there's the, those situations can be so you know multifaceted and and so many different. Uh, things come into play that executing it in real time can be difficult. And yeah, I think that you're right that, you know, um, having sort of a, a, a reference material of some kind would help make those decisions, but those aren't actually super common or uh, broad scale impactful. It reminds um, me of, I think Van Gundy, um, Van Gundy was talking about this at MIT a number of years ago. Which now. Van Gundy, just to be the, clear, the, Jeff the or small, Stan? The smaller of the Van Gundys. Okay. Uh, Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. Jeff. I, I know where you're going with this. So he, he, he kind of chided the audience and the analysts, the audience, you know, audience is mostly analysts, for kind of over-obsessing on these kinds of decisions, in-game decisions. And I think at the time it was the, the two-for-one thing. So, like, do you shoot earlier in the clock so you can get a second possession yep. before the end of time? And he's like, look, I don't – you may remember it, Seth, better than I do. I, I just remember him kind of chiding. He's like, look, guys – you know, I've got six other things I've got to worry about that matter a lot. And you're telling me I'm going to increase my probability from, you know, something small to something slightly bigger. And he's like, I just, I just can't, I just can't consider that. Seth, I've just abused what he said. Do you remember any more specifically? Yeah, no, I, it was, it was, the, he, he I, like paraphrasing, he was recounting him and Daryl Morey kind of going back and forth on this and, and okay. And, and at a certain point, uh, Van Gundy was, uh, so, okay. What's what's the impact of this? And and Daryl said, uh, you know, maybe a win every two or three years. And, and, yeah, and then he right. threw his hands up. And and I I am kind of on uh, Van Gundy's side. Yeah, yeah. What's well, the? Uh, I mean, uh, in that specific instance, also, it's not really a two for one so much. It's more of a one and a half for one. Yeah. Right. So what? So Seth, end what, of quarter possessions are are just not great. So Seth, uh, in your experience, both with the Bucks and the time you've worked in the industry, what are those big effect size events that you were working on a project and you were like, wow, if we can crack this nut, it's not once every two or three years. Maybe it's once every two or three weeks. Like what are the, can you give us an example? I mean, I, it's something that's been made a huge deal of uh, around basketball and I'm, I'm actually writing about this now is is kind of obviously the the shot location um the emphasis on on what are high value shots versus ones we want to avoid and conversely the ones we want to induce versus the ones we want to prevent um that's obviously a pretty that's, that's a pretty big lever in terms of, of of offensive and defensive efficiency is is you know getting is taking the shots you want to take and 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 and, do, and not letting the the offense take take those same kind of good shots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So take us a, one level deeper on that, if you could. Like, what's an example, or what's a just, what's the next level of analysis on that? What or or apply it to a team, a team you know has preferences and and how they try to you know live those preferences. Um. So this is something that that I that I uh, I'll try to avoid specifics of what I of what I did for for the Bucks for I think obvious reasons. Sure. But, sure. Um, Something I did some work on publicly before I went is, you know, you look at at uh, a, a catch and shoot jump shot. Um, something is good. Something good has happened in the offensive possession, so that you know you're able to throw the ball to a guy who can shoot, who's open enough to catch and shoot it. Mm-hmm. Now, 
for a long time, you know, teams were running plays for for a guy to catch that shot and shoot a 19 footer. And the, and you know, it's, it, in retrospect, it kind of seems obvious. Well, take why not run it to have him shoot a 23 footer? It's worth a full more point and the difference in shooting accuracy between for an NBA player across those two distances is not that much. And you get a whole extra point for, for stepping back. So yep. run the play for him to catch the ball behind the arc. And just so kind of uh, offense is being designed so that players receive the ball in positions to, to, to do better things uh, while following their kind of their, their natural training and instincts for, so, Oh, I'm open. Shoot. Yep. So, so you're talking about this being the, one of the bigger issues to work on right now, obviously the, game has changed so much speaking of daryl so the mori ball move everybody's trying to do that kind of thing presumably you're talking about kind of a response to that and given that things have gone to drive or drive and kick out and that's kind of everything what's the natural response like now we can start bringing back mid-range jumpers because in that world they are more valuable is that, yeah, is our, that our defense is going to start evolving to play closer to that three-point line and therefore it's going to open up more area in the kind of the mid-range is that the next evolution um, to some extent, I think the next evolution is teams doing a, and this is hard to implement because it's it's somewhat it's it's very situational and kind of personnel based. But there's a lot of times you watch an NBA game and a guy is driving the ball, not really looking to score himself. He's driving and, it, and almost he's almost staring at the guy he knows is going to help, and just waiting for that guy to make a move so he can kick the ball to a, a, a shooter, and um, situations where, all right, if if you know some if a if a point guard who's not a great scorer is kind of driving with you know defensive pressure on him, um, go ahead, you know tra- you you beat us. I mean, obviously teams there's there's examples of of teams doing this with kind of notorious like non uh, non scoring threats. Like this is how teams have kind of played Ricky Rubio at times, for right. example. Right. But really figuring out who the guys are, all right, if he's going to beat us by, you know, shaking down and pulling up from mid-range, good luck to you, yeah. um, as opposed to, to helping off a shooter and and, and, and then giving up a kick-out pass and an open three or a drive and dunk or something mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. so uh, really adjusting to not protecting less valuable space as much as I think teams do at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Seth Partno. Seth writes about basketball and basketball analytics for The Athletic great uh, relatively new sports media outlet that everyone should be paying attention to the athletic he was with the milwaukee bucks on their research staff for three years before that he was one of the founding writers for nylon calculus seth is a great follow on twitter by the way his handle up there is at seth partno partno is p-a-r-t-n-o-w seth in what way are you a different analyst having spent three years inside a building um, I, I think I'm I'm much more cognizant of the array of factors that go into every decision. Um, I think I was I, I had some sense of it before I, I worked for a team, um, but you really see how it's almost uh, uh, if you're looking at it on paper, it's it's a two-dimensional problem, and then you actually get inside and start working with people, and it becomes a three-dimensional problem. Right. Which, you know. It's, it's, it's exponentially more more difficult. And can can you give you know, us an example lot. just to, that really resonates with me? But can you make it a little bit more concrete for our listeners? Um, I think I think this is one that's been talked about uh, a, a little bit. Um, you know, the, a lot of was made uh, when when Westbrook and and Durant both still played for the Thunder. There was always this: why doesn't the coach like stagger their rest 
Um, and, and, you know, there was research done saying that, you know, they play better with um, – they, they play enough worse with both of them off the floor to to make it valuable to split them up some so that there's at least one of them on the floor. And, but then you, you, you hear about it, and they want to play together as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's a um, – the, the NBA being the star-driven league that it is, that's, okay, well, how much are we giving up by by – and is it worth? Is is the juice worth the squeeze of of you know right. antagonizing our, our our best players? <laughs> right, right. Um, and you know, so, it, so, however so, you want to come at, come down on the the answer to that, um, that's a slightly more complicated problem than it's just well, obviously the 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 uh, the the history shows that they perform better in this way. So just do it. So what advice um, would you give to simple. sports analysts in general if you, you come away with a deeper appreciation of you know the extra dimensions you have to consider in basketball? And so you're different as a basketball analyst. To what extent can we say, analysts in general, just be, get over yourself a little bit. You're, you don't know all the different considerations, and so you're probably preaching with a little too much conviction. But if we say that, what's the limit of it? Because isn't the, isn't the kind of the traditional old school response to analytics to be kind of a what about response? What about this? What about that? You know, we tell people, well, you should be going for it on fourth down more often or something. And they say, well, what about, you know, the you know the the wind that day or something and they've always got another consideration that are going to be outside the model so on the one hand I'm completely sympathetic and I do think we kind of need to get over ourselves and recognize we don't know some things but on the other hand it's like there's a you know you can take that too far how how do you think about that tension uh, no it's a, that's something that's that's constantly in in play and it's why I like to say it's it's art not science because the feel for all right uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this but it's not worth the uh, it's not worth the the hassle or no this is a big deal and, and i can i can demonstrate i'm right and demonstrate i'm right in a way that will be convincing to a to a, at least an open-minded traditionalist mm-hmm. um and that's and that's a there's no kind of manual for that that's mm-hmm. that's where kind of feel for the sport and kind of what uh, what everyone likes to call soft skills come into play in terms mm-hmm. of 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 you know it's uh, Twitter is, of course, a lousy environment for this because it it, uh, it it encourages, for a number of reasons, kind of declamatory, uh, n- no possible disagreements uh, allowed kind of uh, uh, modes of discourse. But that's not super effective in, in terms of, of being convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and the other thing I found is that is that couching things in terms of, I know you know this, but... I mean, if you can if you can distill the analysis to not something mathematical, economic, statistical, whatever, make it, it, it. This is a basketball thing. I'm telling you. Yeah, right. Hey, if we're if we're more aggressive in our catch and shoot decisions, good things will happen. Right. Okay. I, as a as a as a basketball person, I understand that. Right. Seth, how and, much? Okay. How much? Um, I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking about what the role actually is. Uh, I'm just thinking back, just because also we have Joe Banner coming on at nine o'clock, and the time I spent with the Eagles. Probably half the time we were the analytics division was spent answering what I would call simple statistics, not statistical problems, statistics, reporting questions like building a dashboard. How much of the time were you able to spend on what you would consider, let's call it, sophisticated and advanced problems versus, you know, a coach wants to know a particular situation in statistic, which is essentially a lookup table in some big database? How, how did you balance those two demands on your time? And I, I guess that kind of probably comes back to your sort of production versus research distinction exactly. that you made earlier. Yeah, no, I think that, that there's all there's um, 
now obviously in a in in a team environment you have the resources to hopefully be able to automate as much of that as possible so you know these are the things that the coach wants to know all right well then it's just it's just there for them they can they, you know it's a, it's a little bit of you know teach a man to fish kind of thing right and, or it's just a matter of if it's a, if it's a regular report i mean you obviously you script it out and and it's it's produced you know instantaneously with you know it take okay it takes it took me three hours to do it the first time and 30 seconds to do it every right time after that. right right seth so listen that, we're, we're down in just a couple of minutes and you're talking about being interested in the research side the inquiry side what is next for you one even on the personal side are you gonna stay in milwaukee and then professionally what is what is pursuing that interesting question look like for you um it's it's uh, in the short term, yes, going to stay in Milwaukee. Uh, my, my my family and kids love it here, so that's that's a that's a big part of it. Um, what's next? I mean, obviously, doing the the, the public writing, um, being involved in kind of conversations with not just other basketball people. It's it's funny to, since I since I left the team, I've I've had more and more open conversations with uh, sort of my my former counterparts within the league yeah. than we were able to have I bet. Uh, while I was with the team. Um, and also people from other sports, because I think that uh, you learn a lot of interesting things from, mm-hmm. from other other contexts that are dealing with similar problems but with different constraints that is that has kind of spurred creativity in different ways mm-hmm. that I think uh, really can, can offer some interesting approaches to solving uh, longstanding problems. Is there- um, and then... And then there's just you know um, uh, there's a wide world of things out there and, and kind of exploring what which, which part of it uh, I want to get into. Got it. Well, listen, we wish you the best with it. We will be following you in your public facing mode on Twitter and with the Athletic, and we'd love to talk with you more down the road. Wish you the best with all of it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Absolutely, Seth Partno. Seth is a writer for the Athletic on the NBA and basketball analytics. He's a former research analyst with the Milwaukee Bucks. And before that, he was one of the founders of Nylon Calculus, which is a fantastic outlet for basketball analytics. Seth is based in Milwaukee after being from Alaska and doing a lot of work um, on Alaska causes. We've just got a few seconds, Jens. Any quick reactions? That good fun, huh? Oh, it's fantastic. And and again, I think it's sort of I, I, I re- briefly had a conversation with one of my uh, friends who works for a basketball team as well, and that kind of burn. I think that production versus research. Teams need to kind of start thinking about a better balance of that for their analysts. True as far as true for all of us that have worked in industry. Exactly, exactly. All right, guys, that has been two quarters and one half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Eric. Adi had to slip away teaching. He's going to be teaching fall, all fall, 9 o'clock, because we're going to lose him second half of the show throughout the fall, sadly. But some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here, too. Give us a shout if you'd like to be. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 942 7866 Email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is our handle up there, at WMoneyball. Just off the phone with Seth Partno talking NBA, which is going to roll into our lives more actively next month. But Seth is a great follow on basketball analytics. I'm sure we're going to talk to him more down the road. It was fun to talk to him for the first time. He's one of our – he was a first-year guest, guys. He might have been a first three months guest. It's, it goes way back, so it's fun to get him back on the show. We have another return guest in the next segment. Joe Banner is joining us. Joe, longtime NFL executive. He was president here in Philadelphia of the Eagles, and then he went over and was CEO of the Cleveland Browns when Jimmy Haslam bought – 
the Browns a few years ago. And Joe has been on the show before talking football with us. He's a great follow. Delighted to have you, Joe. Good morning to you. Good morning. Great to be on with you guys again. Where are you, you down in Florida again? You calling from down there? I am, although about to head to Philadelphia for a week. So. Oh, really? Fantastic. This is a good time of year to make that switch. It's beautiful up here right now. Well, I won't be there long, but uh, I will get a little taste of Philadelphia coming right up. Great, Joe. Uh, listen, football season's off the ground now, both on the college side and professional side. I'm, I'm sure that it has some attention from you. I'm curious what your reactions were. We have lots of questions, but just you know, what did you pay attention to? What are you thinking about here this week after watching some football for the first time, regular season pro football for the first time in a long time? Wow. I mean, a whole bunch of uh, kind of anecdotal thoughts on uh, I think the the narrative that the NFC is uh, so much better than the AFC is uh, quickly shifting. Yeah. I really think there's only a couple of teams in the NFC that are really, really great, which doesn't necessarily mean there won't be some other teams that emerge, whereas there's a whole group of teams, two in particular being the Patriots of Kansas City, that are two of the best teams I think we've seen in a long time. Right. I do think we see a little bit of movement towards some of the things the analytics tell us, but some of it is continues to be shockingly slow so what when you say when you say movement towards things analytics tell us what in particular are you thinking about well i think the increase in passing on first down i think the understanding that the middle of the field is so crucial and getting running backs on linebackers and safeties covering tight ends which is seems like the patriots and the eagles have been doing for a very long time but most of the league didn't seem to be copying it despite the copycat league label mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and now we see definitely more and more teams uh, doing they even see seattle starting to throw the ball to the backs more mm-hmm. um you know those kinds of things i think the uh um <laughs> one of the things we didn't see is people moving away from three-man rushes <laughs> which uh, somehow escaped the announcers on monday night it was totally determinative of the game virtually every three-man rush was a big play one mm-hmm. was actually an interception uh, the others tended to be big plays for the offense, including the conspicuous last two plays of the game. But that had actually been happening, you know, all game long. Um, you know, I just think going back to even team building, we see increases in, in focus on, on uh, mismatches and, and how easily that is done with the running backs, slot receivers, and tight ends uh, versus how hard it is to get a really great wide receiver who's so good that he could beat almost any corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's reflected even team building. Now we see a lot more teams that are uh, focusing on getting those players and, and prioritizing. We do see some increase in the pay to running backs, which still doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so just j- because there's an abundance of the position, the notion that the position isn't important really was a narrative that didn't make any sense that I never believed. Uh, the running backs were extremely important, and almost all the winning teams have running backs that are good and effective, uh, not necessarily expensive. Right. Um, so I you're, you're, you're more speaking to the kind of ease of replacing production at that position. Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. listen, it's <laughs> not to be really trite, but let's go back to fifth grade. We learned about supply and demand. So <laughs> you went to a different only, fifth grade than I did. It's <laughs> the only position on the field in which the supply of players that are good enough to win a Super Bowl significantly exceeds the demand which is why many teams have two or three running backs they could win with so Joe, uh, and have. So, Joe, that means you felt very strongly about things like the Giants drafting Saquon Barkley, even if he was the best running back prospect in, quote, a generation, or you feel very strongly about the Cowboys paying Elliott as much as they did? Yeah, listen, there's not 
it would be easy if there was just one set of formulas to follow and then you win the Super Bowl. That's really not the way the NFL works. There's a lot of ways you can win it, but there's also a lot of ways that give you a better chance of winning it than the guy next door. And when you're using up your high draft picks and significant cap dollars, those are really the assets you have to build the team, your dollars and your draft picks. Right. So if you're using up high picks or a lot of money on a position that uh, you can be – very good at not you're not accepting mediocrity of the position i mean we're at the eagles we went from ricky waters to charlie garner to deuce staley to brian westbrook to shady mccoy right you know <laughs> it's a good run. and we never spent a high draft pick or a ton of money on running backs and right. we had running backs that were hugely important to our success i mean it's third and four you got brian westbrook out there it's almost impossible to not create a mismatch that you're converting the first down mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we do see more of that happening although i still don't know why it's just not everywhere mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but to answer your question directly i would not pick those players or pay those players the way they're getting paid if right. i were making the decisions right joe the other issues you went through as you talked about play is like slowly moving towards what the analytics would, would suggest the old saws in analytics are about going for it more on fourth down maybe going for it more on two-point conversions you skipped over that and you went to some more subtle bits and i'm curious where you're information comes from and I'm and, and more importantly I'm curious how you stay current because the world does change so you mentioned passing first you mentioned exploiting the middle of the field you mentioned minimizing three-man rushes so you're you're saying those are analytics based that must be coming from where when you were working with teams how do you what those things can change over time and so how do you stay how do you know what what's what's the right way to what do the analytics suggest today given dynamics well, listen, I think the next phase of analytics for the teams that already filled all that, figured all that out is exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's things like going for it more frequently on fourth down. I think the teams that are actually shifting um, are still at the point where things like, uh, you know, controlling the middle of the field and using running backs in certain ways, throwing the ball at first downs, um, uh, formation sensitivity. Um, I don't know if you've ever had Warren Sharp on a, as a guest. Um, you know, I think Warren has uh, enlightened teams, few of which he's consulting for, and other information that he posts on Twitter or on his uh, website. Yep. Um, with a sensitivity to the importance of, uh, of formations and, and just crazy correlations between success rates, depending upon put the same players out against the same defense and put them out there in the right formation versus the wrong formation. Uh, so I think those kinds of things, the teams that are already kind of ahead of the curve, mm -hmm. or at least where they should be, uh, I think some of the things we see, like you know Warren doing and some of the other uh, guys out there, are going to you know push the envelope a little bit further and keep mm -hmm. going there. I'm actually good friends with Warren and and helped him with the launch of his website recently. So I'm not um, promoing him, but I think he reflects kind of a front edge of the curve on. You know, once we get these basic things that we should have known 30 years ago, what, right. what happens after that? How many teams do you think are on that frontier? They've kind of they've kind of cleared the lower hurdle of the basics, the punting and the two down, the second two point conversions, and now they're on to these more sophisticated questions. How many teams would you say are roughly in that tier? You know, this has been a struggle since uh, when we first started doing this. That the Eagles and Eric was there because everybody's so secretive. But if I watch what they're doing, right. Uh, I'm going to say maybe half a dozen, and there could be a few more. There could be a few less. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, somebody may just have good instincts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's teams here that in, in this last off season, uh, I think particularly the Ravens and the Colts, 
that haven't been uh, overly engaged in this, although they've been participating in a way they tended to think was engaged in this, but didn't realize what they didn't know. Uh, took some steps this off season to uh, have a deeper departments with, uh, you know, some quality people and, and yeah. starting, you know, with managers just making a statement that this is important. Right. And there's so many, so many teams right now that are like, well, everybody else is doing this, so we better do it some too, versus this is a priority for the organization because one of the few things that you can create a competitive advantage within the system was designed to create, you know, this equality. Right. Is things like hiring great coaches and being ahead of the curve on analytics. So if mm-hmm. you're looking for something that differentiates you, when you're playing within a system that's designed to keep everybody equal, right? These are the kinds of things that can do that. And frankly, in the case of analytics, it's still at the point where it's pretty inexpensive. Right. These, the guys that are doing this for teams are not getting paid commensurately with the difference they make versus you know a position coach. You know, <laughs> get, given that it's money. it's always been a little surprising. I mean, teams. You, you hear people who try to sell into teams say this all the time. They say teams are cheap, and it's. I think it's it's hard to swallow, n- not being willing to hire a relatively low paid, like I mean, a, you know, low paid professional analyst whenever they're paying, you know, whatever the salary cap number is these days, one hundred and fifty million dollars, one hundred seventy five million dollars, and for players. Um, so, when we see a team go out and hire a handful over a summer, it is kind of encouraging that that may be shifting some at least. For some teams, listen. Talking about these edges and talking about who's analytics based and who's not. What's your what's your what's your professional evaluation of where where the Pats' edges come from? So of course we've got Brady, and of course we kind of say Belichick, but we don't. No one decomposes that into what are the key bits of Belichick, because they seem to have so many different edges, and it's not necessarily orthodox analytics. And moreover, whenever their their front office goes and starts somewhere else. They don't always carry success with them. And when coaches go somewhere else, they don't, they're not always successful. So it's, there's, there's, I think it's a very interesting question to ponder, like where those edges come from. And then they go and sign someone like Antonio Brown. Maybe they're the one locker room that can handle that guy. If that's true, that's a real competitive edge, and that's something like the culture. I'd be very curious to hear you talk through where you think those edges come from with those guys. Well, first of all, there's virtually none that have been successful. It's not even like not all. Well, so maybe oh. maybe Dimitrov at Atlanta, right? Yeah, that's been a little bit of a roller coaster, and when that happens, you know, <laughs> as I've I've heard you speak to, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean to be insulting to Tom, who I know and do think does a good job, but you know, broken clock is right twice a day. So if you're on a roller coaster, um, you know, you're you're probably a little bit better than the collective group, but you're yeah. not okay. a Belichick who's just there at the top all the time. Right. I mean, it's something really differentiating right. uh, uh, that. It, I think it, <laughs> the answer is, is a long list, and it does include the culture. Uh, it includes setting a bar. Uh, you know, Antonio Brown is easy for them. Uh, I'll bet, we haven't seen it yet, at least I haven't seen it yet, that the language on the guarantee in Antonio Brown's contract is the same as it was in Oakland in the sense that he doesn't have any money in his pocket yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know what, he's going to come in, and they're going to say, you're going to do exactly what we tell you to do when you tell you to do it, or you're going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they lose a couple of dollars in the meantime, it's a very simple risk-reward calculation for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Patriots aren't the best team at evaluating players in the league. They're the best team at evaluating players that work for them right. than any team in the league. Right. Uh, so, you know, they put priority on things like intelligence and drive and 
the ability, you know, you, you hear about this, and if you watch the tape, it's true. They actually play different kind of schemes, make adjustments every single week in a way that virtually nobody else is doing. The coaches are too afraid on other teams. It would lead to mental mistakes, mm-hmm. which to a coach is both, you know, drives them crazy, but frankly gives them excuse for why things aren't working. Oh, we didn't execute properly. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't hear that new anyway. If Bill Belichick ever said we didn't execute properly, he would be criticizing himself. That's mm-hmm. his view of the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. He's not criticizing the players, not criticizing the team. He's criticizing his ability to get them prepared in a way that they're not making those kind of mistakes. So he'd never say that. When you hear a coach saying, oh, we didn't execute well, you should think, oh, well, you did a crappy job. <laughs> Bad preparation, right. Joe, you... the coach doesn't think of it that way. He thinks of it as if he's subtly, without naming anybody, criticizing you know, the players that are out there. Yeah. Listen, the Patriots, uh, they they understand the notion of controlling the line of scrimmage, although they do it differently. You know, why does Belichick trade away a Jones and a Collins uh, when he clearly understands the importance of getting pressure on the quarterback? His definition of pressure on the quarterback is push the pocket into the quarterback's face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those guys are easy to find, whereas somebody that's going to get 14 sacks is really hard to find. Yeah, that's interesting. He just wants you to, if you're a defensive tackle, just get low drive the guy back towards the quarterback, hopefully you'll get him to move his feet, and then we've won. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's created a different definition of what makes a successful defensive line. I remember talking to Ron Wolf many years ago, uh, and he loved that they were playing at the time the West Coast offense because the best thing in the West Coast offense was slow, big, not slow, but slower, big wide receivers. Mm-hmm. So we never had to use a high draft pick or spend a lot of money on a wide receiver to give the coach exactly what he needed. You know, you're talking about you're talking about a match between a offensive philosophy or a defensive philosophy, a strategic philosophy for a side of the ball, and market inefficiencies. So you're you're either are lucky that the kind of ball you want to play happens to put a premium on players that the rest of the market doesn't prize, or you choose a philosophy that puts a premium on players that the rest of the market doesn't prize. They certainly have gotten that part down. And I don't even know how many other teams are trying very, you know, persistently to do that. We don't, you just don't see teams pursue philosophy for any length of time that gives them these advantages in the labor market. No, you're absolutely right. Listen, another one is that, and, and this is not really changing, I mean, the most efficient market, or the most inefficient that gives you a chance to be efficient within it, is undrafted free agents. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's uh, the third largest number of Pro Bowl players come from undrafted free agents. Doesn't cost you a draft pick in four years. Doesn't cost you any money. Literally, in some cases, any money. I mean, you're paying a minimum salary. Uh, okay, so but Joe, so, so, so you were actively involved in this process. These guys. I mean, my sense of it is that they basically have to recruit them. So how is it that some teams are better at getting either more or better undrafted free agents into their camps after after the draft? Well, we did this in Philadelphia, and initially it was just great salesmanship and prioritizing it. But fairly quickly, we were able to point to the fact that we've signed more undrafted free agents than any team. We have more undrafted free agents on our team than any other team. We have more starters who are undrafted free agents than any other team. When the Eagles went to four straight championship games, we had a whole group. I think there's three or four guys. Realized if you get four guys, that's 20% of your starting lineup that were undrafted free agents. I mean, we took a lot of heat the year that I was in Cleveland for what was perceived to be you know, bad personnel decisions. We signed, and you know, a guy that researched this told me no team has ever done this, but I don't 
I'm not sure. Literally, no team has ever done this. We signed 13. We claimed in waivers before the end of training camp or signed undrafted free agents 13 players. Oh, wow. They played in the league for at least four years, a handful of which became solid starters. By the way, not in Cleveland. But right, they, right. So, so we, we looked at that market. We, we had a year where we knew we had five draft picks and only two of them were in the first five rounds. And I said to the scouts, I said, we got to walk out of this with at least three to four starters. I mean, we were accumulating assets for the future, as you see teams doing now. I said, that's great. That's the right strategy. But we still got to find a way to come out of this draft with three to four players. Yeah. Well, the only way we could do that was if we hit on a bunch of undrafted free agents. We weren't going to hit on three out of three or four out of five picks, especially since three of them were in the last two rounds. So we signed all these undrafted free agents for very minimal money. And 13 of them played through the, at least their entire rookie contract. Now, as I say, few of them played on different teams. Some of them were just special teams guys. A few of them ended up being starters. But I don't know why somebody is – and we planned for that. We did not sign, uh, you know, veteran players to fill out the roster before right. the draft. Most teams will they'll leave themselves seven spots for their draft picks and maybe another eight to 12, 13 spots for undrafted free agents. I think we went into it with over 20 spots that we needed to sign undrafted free agents. And then we just made the cuts, make your list. And by the way, we're all going to remember who found the guys that made it and who found <laughs> yeah, the guys right. that made it. Well, Joe, you're, your list of undrafted free agents you think for some reason are going to end up way overachieving where we got them. But you got to have a – I think you're also talking about a – you must have an organizational process or philosophy that is open to those guys once they're in there. It's one thing to bring them into camp. You're, you're, you're really throwing darts. You're not just throwing darts, but you're kind of throwing darts when, on who you bring in. But for a team to actually sign and keep these guys, it means you gave them a real chance, and you didn't, you weren't, you weren't biased against them. You know, it's almost like put them out there without names or numbers and just pick the best players. And it turns out, whoa! Turns out that these undrafted free agents look better than we thought they did, because we were putting so much attention and and, and confidence in our high draft picks. Is that right? Is that a part of the process? Absolutely. No, you know, they, 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 they... The confirmation bias that exists in the world absolutely exists in guys that are picked in the first round versus undrafted free agents. So, I mean, it's it's a mindset is the word that I use for it. It's mm-hmm. a mindset you have to have. And listen, some coaches know it. Some coaches have to sit down and educate them. Here's a team that won the Super Bowl. How many undrafted free agents did they have that were starters? Mm-hmm. And, you know, coaches are trained to think short term. So I don't mean to say that like it's one conversation. It's easy. That's it. It's an ongoing struggle, and you know you you assume when you go into it that you're going to be with a coach for three, four, five years. Yep. So you're okay with the fact that he may not 100% buy into that, you know, the first minute, as long as you're seeing him being yeah. open-minded enough that he's going to buy into it over time. Right. By the way, you got to include the position coaches because yep. if the position coaches aren't coming into the report, you have a meeting each night in training camp, and you go over what kind of what happened and how various people did, and through that you're formulating. Who are the guys that are 50 through 60 that we're going to have to make decisions on would make the final cuts? Right. You hear coaches all the time, well, you, the way you make the team is to be good on special teams. Yeah. How many times have you heard that cliche? Exactly. We never said that. We said the way you make the team is to prove that over time you have a chance to become a starter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. our guys 45 through 53 that weren't going to dress for games would get people that we thought could eventually be starters. Yeah. And if you have that mindset about it, you're selecting different players to stay on the roster. And if you're sitting there going, well, my 48th guy better be good on special teams. Yeah. Or what good is he going to do for me? Got it. We're talking to Joe problem. Banner. Joe is a former NFL executive, 20 years, president of the Philadelphia Eagles, and then CEO with the Cleveland Browns. He now lives in Miami, though he's headed to Philadelphia this week. Joe is a repeat guest here on Wharton Moneyball, especially now that we've got football underway. It's great to hear 
your take on things, Joe. So, Joe, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. First of all, it, it's always great to talk to you, and it, um, I think extraordinarily fondly of the five years we spent together. You, you, um, you said something that I know I thought about a lot when I was working for you, which is you mentioned there's lots of ways to win in the NFL. Um, but it seems right now there's such high value, obviously, put on the quarterback position. Um, how do you think about that? even today, as you're thinking about building a team? Do you build it from the offensive line, people say? Do you build it from just trying to find mismatches at certain positions? How do you think about, if you'd like, of all the paths you could take to winning, where do you start? So, again, being a little bit trite, for me, it's, so what is the hardest thing to find? And that's the priority. So I think the hardest thing to find, first, is quarterback. And second is get to the point where you're controlling both lines of scrimmage. And so those are the things we prioritize. I can find the Patriots have proven this, the Eagles proved this, even with a list of names that I gave you. You can find a running back to create mismatches with. You can create mismatches with a slot receiver just by putting a guy who's actually good enough to be on the outside, has really quick feet, put him on the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can find a good tight end who's a mismatch on a safety almost every time you snap the ball. Now, to put somebody at right guard or left tackle who's consistently going to give my quarterback the peace of mind that you have time to run the play, that's hard to find. Mm -hmm. It's why all of a sudden, uh, in the last few years, guards are making 12 and $13 million. Mm -hmm. And when Tunsil gets signed, we're going to see an offensive lineman make over $20 million. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the flip is true with the defense. If This is always – there's a bunch of teams in the league, at least if we watch their actions, not listen to their words – they believe that it's crucial to have top talent on your defensive line, but don't believe it's crucial to have top talent on your offensive line. It's crucial to have good weapons. This will be interesting to watch what happens with the Browns because that's kind of what they've done. They prioritized on offense weapons over linemen. Now, you know, I believe the other way. And I think most of the teams that win, but not all. We've seen teams win do that. We just don't see them win as often, in mm -hmm. my opinion, as the teams that are building uh, the offensive line. What I say is, and Eric, this may go back all the way to the time you were, you were with us, or soon thereafter, if not. If the quarterback has more than two and a half seconds to throw the ball, it's a completed pass and a gain almost every time. So if I can put together a line that against the best defensive line in the league is getting my quarterback more than two and a half seconds, or if I'm running a defense and I can create a defense that's consistently going to get pressure on the quarterback, this doesn't mean he's going to be sacked in two and a half seconds. It means he's going to be affected in two and a half seconds. Then I know my defense is going to be successful in stopping the passing game, which I think is the, key, the crucial thing to do at this point. Or if offensively I'm consistently getting my quarterback more than two and a half seconds, I think I'm going to be successful. So for me, you know, those are the priorities because those are the hardest things to find. And you don't automatically win if you have great lines in a quarterback, but you do almost automatically lose. And by that, I mean, you know, let's say top eight to ten teams in the league. You can't really get into top eight, ten to teams in the league unless you have a good quarterback and strong lines. So, Joe, a lot of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball may be asking the question, like, where does what I'll call the forward thinking stop? Like, for example, imagine you know you don't have a great offensive line, and so you can't get your quarterback two and a half seconds. Therefore, I can't have the slow, big receiver that takes time to get open. I now have to then say, given that constraint, I now have to have quick receivers, maybe play a West Coast offense that can beat people off the ball quickly. Get the ball How, out quick. Exactly. How do you not end up in a sense where you now have a 15-thought sequence of 
decision trees. You're like, wow, now I've got to change my entire roster because of this one fact that I can't hold my quarterback doesn't have enough time. Let, let me generalize that a little bit because I think this is what happens with with teams almost by necessity because you you don't get to operate in a vacuum where you can just design the optimal uh, roster according to your philosophy. You have to live with the talent that comes on the market. So we see it with Daryl Morey in the NBA, for example. He's ended up with this, you know, very unique roster and very unique approach over the last few years. I'm not sure he would have chosen that from scratch, but he has to he has to somehow reconcile his preferred approach with the material that's out there. And you see a little bit, I mean, what is, you look at teams that, we have some of these teams in the NFL who kind of end up in the same place. They, they end up with a certain quarterback and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and build a team around this quarterback, and it means a particular kind of offense. And so there is this reconciliation, it seems. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And keep in mind, as I say these things, you can win a whole bunch of different ways in the NFL, but there are some ways that give you a better chance or make it more likely. Right. So like the, like the Browns, which we just mentioned, is actually a good example. When I watched the Browns the second half of last season. I thought they had done just what you just said. Um, at that point, they had actually a better offensive line than they have now, but not a great offensive line. And they ran an offense in which the ball was out so quickly in various simple uh, forms, you know, uh, slant passes, you know, screens, quick passes to running backs on linebackers, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, these, these were the kinds of things that they were doing. Now, they didn't do this last week, so we'll see if they've made that kind of adjustment. For me, it comes down to more of this, though. When you get to the second round of the draft, you know, there's players sitting there that are linemen and corners and wide receivers that are all good enough to win with. When we were in Philadelphia, if we sat there and two players had the same grade, we were taking the linemen every time. Mm-hmm. We got the undrafted free agent. If we had 20 spots available, we were going to sign as many linemen for those spots as we could possibly get. Hmm. You know, and that's about competition because at some point you've got your eight guys who were on the roster and then you've got two guys who signed the free agency and the agent saying, why should I spend them there? He's got to beat out you know, so many people. It's not realistic. Um, so I think that you have more control, at least in football, um, than at least my you know, less in-depth familiarity with the, with the other leagues to kind of determine this. The quarterback is the biggest, you know, if Lamar Jackson's sitting there, you really believe in him, um, you know, playing, you know, versus how most of the quarterbacks traditionally play, I think then you face the kind of decision you're describing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think you can control this uh, mostly. Uh, But listen, we talked about the Patriots. The other thing, they're the only team in the league, and I think there are some other great coaches, although I think Belichick's the greatest. The, The only team in the league that actually does versus says, we're going to design things that match up with the talent that we have. But you're never going to see Bill Belichick have a roster, which is of multiple running backs that can, he can match up on linebackers and go in the matchup every single time. You're never going to see him not have tight ends that he feels like he can go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I have to get Randy Moss. I'm going to not win the matchup on the outside as often as I want. Whereas I can get, you know, you know, go back to when he picked up the first fault, you know, 20 years ago. 
um, and Sonny Michelle now and guys like this. I can get that guy, you know, all the time and win that match every single time I need to. I can scheme him. I can scheme the advantage in those positions. That's so interesting. Listen, Joe, we're down to just a minute or two, and we want to hear one last thing from you before you go. When you're watching football, how do you think you watch it different from the average fan? Or, or to flip it around, what recommendation would you make to the average fan if they want to understand better what's going on or what's going to happen or how good a team really is? How do you think – those fans, us, how do you think we should be watching football differently? Well, this is, I just actually uh, uh, <laughs> went through this yesterday. The the thing that people miss in watching the game is what we started talking about, who's winning line of scrimmage. If you happen to see the Eagles game last week, you saw a game that completely flipped. The Redskins were completely dominating, and then the Eagles were completely dominating. And what happened? I mean, Jonathan Allen got hurt for the Redskins. They didn't build the team with depth on the defensive line. And all of a sudden, the Eagles are running the ball right up the middle and passing at will. And on the flip side, the Eagles got aggressive on a couple of plays, uh, had a little bit more movement of the defensive line, and started kind of just teeing off on the quarterback. And the game completely changed. Mm -hmm. I think announcers and fans tend to kind of watch the ball. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting you don't watch the ball, but if you're really trying to understand what's happening here, why why is one team winning? Uh, you should be watching what's happening at the line of scrimmage, and you should be seeing if that two and a half second. You know, Joe, if, if that's true, and I believe it, I, I can believe that. It you know that's a there's an opportunity there for for television producers to facilitate our seeing that in some way. I mean, especially with advanced analytics. They're measuring like displacement and pocket size and whether a guy beats a block or not. That could be reported real time because it's tough. I mean, one, our eyes are drawn to the ball anyway. But two, it is tough to keep track of what's going on with five or six guys on the line of scrimmage going against three, four, five, six guys on the other side. I wonder if that's not a direction for television producers to go and, and data analytics to go is to facilitate draw attention in a sophisticated way to the part of the field that we think is underappreciated right now. Yeah, well, it's just that they could do that in, at a minimum. They're paying somebody to be the analyst. We call him the color man, but he's really the analyst. You know, so analyze that for us. I mean, we watched the game Monday night, and uh, I worked with Booker McFarland at ESPN. He's one of the nicest guys I've met in all my time in the NFL. And he's a lineman. And the whole game was being decided by the quantity of three-man rushes and the yeah. Texans' unwillingness to make any kind of adjustment, despite how bad they were getting burnt all the way to the last play of the game. And he sat there for three hours and 60 minutes of football and never mentioned it once. Wow. Yeah. Fair enough. There's a low-tech solution for you. <laughs> Listen, Joe, always appreciate hearing from you. Enjoy talking to you. Um, good luck with your trip up here to Philadelphia, and we'll talk to you more down the road. Appreciate it. Good being with you guys as well. A- absolutely. Joe Banner, former NFL exec, longtime president of the Philadelphia Eagles, CEO of the Cleveland Browns. You can follow Joe on Twitter, at JoeBanner13, at JoeBanner13, entertaining follow on Twitter. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern, that is. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner was in for the first hour. He's in the classroom now. You guys who aren't in classrooms, give us a shout. Let us hear from you. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 942 7866 Email us, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Hit us up on Twitter. At W is our handle there, at WMoneyball. We are just off the phone with Joe Banner. It's like you know, it's like having it's like having coffee with your uncle after after the weekend football. Just hearing hearing him ta- hearing his takes. It's good entertainment. It's insightful. 
you don't agree with everything, no, but it, you know, it's entertaining. Yeah, in my case, it's flashbacks on meetings with my boss. But yes, I do. I do <laughs> right. get the uncle part because uh, you know it was everything that Joe was saying was the same philosophy that he had, which was where is there the most variation? Uh, what what do we actually know that's predictive of winning? And we're going to maximize against that. Yeah, it's. I mean, I I, I think Joe's fantastic. Um, it, the the uh, he's and he's got some strong positions. So it's it's fun. He's, he's fun to hear. I think it, it speaks to just how difficult football is. I think it's hard to run. I mean, there are so many smart people in football. You, we talk to them like weekly. But there's like maybe five or six organizations. Well, that's he what Joe's about. That's yeah, what he said. Like like a half a dozen organizations that actually seem to know what they're doing. Yeah. In a consistent sort of way. It, so one response would be, well, that's because they don't they're they're not thinking about it right, which is yeah. possible. But the other is, and, and maybe true in many situations. The other is it's hard, and they're yeah. you go inside those teams, and there are so many different forces. It's just hard to get it all going in one direction. And the real advantage comes from getting it all going in one direction for multiple years in a row. And that's just hard to do yeah. organizationally. But I, I just think we sort of see that. I mean, because that theoretically could be the same case in other sports. I think part of the reason it's we, we see it the most in football is that I think the actual game itself is incredibly complicated. Absolutely. Matchup of scheme and strategy and personnel decisions. Feedback is noisy as hell. Feedback like is noisy. I, I just think there's some things about I, football specifically that make it even harder to kind of build, I think, a kind of consistently winning culture. With the Eagles, I always gave credit to it started with the top, which is, you know, I told the story many times. I met Jeff Lurie, and he's the one that brought me in. He's got a PhD in sociology. Joe Banner has an undergrad degree in economics and Howie Roseman was using analytics for a long time before he ever joined football and every what I say with great pride is every meeting I had with the Eagles was essentially with all three of them they were meeting with their analytics group and this is the owner the president and at that point the general manager and right. it did start that, at the top that's alignment right there and now they have a coach that's on, on the same page exactly as well. so re really nice example for the for the analytics community even within the complex world of football Okay, do you need analytics to know who the best team in college football is? I, I don't think it's that obvious who the best team in college football is. A lot of folks think thinks Clem, think Clemson is. Clemson's top of the polls, has been since the first of the year, and that's kind of a new thing. Now, we tend to bring forward what happened at the end of last year, so maybe that's why Clemson's there, having won the national championship in convincing fashion. But we still have the tide, Crimson Tide, way out front. We have about five and a half points out above Clemson have had wow. since the first of the year, and they're still rolling along. So the inter the I'll take Clemson plus eight on a neutral on a uh, at Alabama. I if Clemson, I half, know, but if isn't there a home field? Yeah, yeah. So sure. I'm saying if Al Clemson played at Alabama, wouldn't Alabama be an eight point yeah. favorite? Yeah. Okay, I'm saying I'll take the eight. Okay, well, they're not going to play in Alabama. I'm, I'm not saying they in Tuscaloosa. They they may end up on a neutral field, of course, a couple of months from now. But the most interesting development, really, I think, is that the that there's a third potential powerhouse in the SEC and they've been they snuck up to number four now in the polls we've had them number four since I think the beginning of the year but LSU they took my 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 team to the to the not quite to the cleaners but they mm -hmm. it was a it was a heck of a game it could have gone either way at the end but they looked good Texas looked good as well but LSU with an offense that we haven't seen ever from LSU and all of a sudden Alabama has real competition in the West. Georgia has real competition as the number two team out of the SEC. And again, I want to raise the specter, this this, this specter, this this terrifying specter. Three of, SEC of a, teams. Of a three SEC team playoff. 
Yeah. And um, there's some chance that this could happen. It's fun to talk about because I think it might break the system. <laughs> well, you know, but, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, exactly. It's it's fun to pull for drama anyway, but especially drama that might push us forward to a better system, maybe an eight-team playoff. But this is a legit. This isn't a bogus. SEC gets too much attention. I mean, LSU has always had these stacked rosters, and now they've matched it with some offensive the, sophistication. The only the only reason I don't see that as realistic this year is I see a Big Ten team as good enough, at least one of them. I can't tell you whether it's going to be Michigan, who hasn't looked great, Ohio State, Wisconsin, etc. But I think one of them will be put together a resume that's going to be good enough. I think a Big Twelve team is going to put together a resume. Whether it's by the way, Texas is not out of it. No. Whether it's Texas or Oklahoma, I think a Big Twelve team will. I think the Pac twelve should be very concerned about getting a spot. So I'm not. I don't think this is the year that you're going to see a three team SEC. You're making a very good point that it it depends not only on having a set of teams that could do it within the SEC. It always depends on what happens else around the country and that scenario has always depended on there being kind of um, atrophy in all these other conferences so and i think the biggest the biggest risk the the biggest challenge is as you said the big 10 and ohio state has looked spectacular Great. so far i'm not a believer at but all what i'm Wisconsin. really hoping for is i am hoping that the final season massey peabody rankings do end up like what they are right now. Because you want Clemson. <laughs> no, no, I want, no, no. I want the top three or four teams. It, it's, I know you're asking a different question because you guys build this as well. Alabama, Georgia, and LSU, I want them to be in the top four, but them not picking all three of them because that, to me, should break the system. If those three teams are, in theory, the best teams, but not the ones that actually get picked, that's another way this system yeah. can break. And I'll be happy. Matter of fact, I want those four teams to be so far above everybody yeah. else, but them not to do it, but and Eric, then foul to be claimed by the third SEC team that's left out. But, Eric, the, the what the committee has shown is a surprising willingness to pick the best, quote, best teams over the, quote, most deserving teams. We the, Historically, they've kind of leaned towards most deserving, and the people who have cried foul are those who say, clearly you would favor this team over that team, and yet you chose this other team. I think that's one of the arguments for why we might see the three SEC team playoff, because if they are so demonstrably better, the, the committee, at least historically, when it's been two teams, has been willing to say, no, nah, we'll take the second one over here and we'll blow off the Big Ten or we'll blow off the Big 12. Whether they do that for a third team, I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about the slate this weekend, because it's not a very long conversation. The game day, which is kind of a good sense of what the you know the best game is, is going to Ames, Iowa for the fir first time. A Iowa, Iowa State, their annual rivalry, Big Twelve, Big Ten game. This I meant to look up the history on this. Maybe we maybe somebody can do it in the time that we have. But this always seems like a good game. This is like a ridiculously by good I mean tight. I don't know how entertaining. They've had some really low scoring ones, but this is always a competitive game. They're kind of, you know, second-tier Big Ten versus second-tier Big 12 with a very long rivalry. Iowa State, Matt Campbell is a coach that people love, and Iowa's kind of always always competitive. So this could be a fun thing to, to pay attention to. Not a lot else to recommend. You know, this old local rivalry that used to be fun when I was a kid, Pittsburgh and Penn State. Remember that one? Yep. It's a 17-point mm -hmm. line. Pittsburgh's visiting Happy Oof. Valley, 17-point line. Here's the, uh, here's the Mike Leach Bowl, Washington State going to play Houston. Uh, his old protege, Dana Hogerson, new coach at Houston. How has but, Houston looked so far this year? You know, not not all that. They weren't supposed to be great, but give Hogerson some time down there. That's a nine-point line. That's Washington State on the road, and they're still giving nine points to 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 um, 
to Houston. Other things around the country, what are we looking at? There's not, there's not well, a whole I, I lot. I wanted to ask you, I guess not. this is not doesn't pertain necessarily to the upcoming slate, but coming out of that LSU-Texas game, how do you kind of feel about I mean, obviously disappointed, I would assume, with the outcome, but Texas did look good. Yeah, you know, I take some heart in how many people have said to me, Texas looks legitimate. And yeah. after 10 years of Texas being embarrassing, it's nice to have your friends tell you, hey, that looked like a legitimate top 10 team to me. Or, wow, that offense, there's a lot of options. That's just good to hear, mm-hmm. frankly, after, after a long And they presumably do kind of control their own destiny at this point yeah, anyway, right? it is, but it's hard to run there's, off 12 wins in a row. No, I agree. There's I one agree. game you didn't mention that I'm actually This quite was always going to be their toughest game on the schedule, though, right? It was, but they've got Oklahoma. And the thing about playing in the Big 12 is you probably have to go through Oklahoma twice. And so last year we beat Oklahoma in the regular season and then had to add in the title game and lost a tight one in the title game. So you got to... What's true about LSU is that everyone expects their defense to be very strong, and no one expects Oklahoma's defense to be very strong. So Texas's offense, this is the other thing you have to come away feeling very good about, is Texas's offense feels like it's hitting on a few more cylinders than it has in the past. The concern, the peop, the thing that people are gnashing their teeth over is the defense, and especially the 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 the, the brain trust of the defense, Todd Orlando and the, and the, is is had too many examples of not being able to get off the field on third down, especially long third downs. And Longhorn faithful are going to remember third and 17 probably for the rest of their life. I mean, people have been talking about third and 17. You can't get it out of your head. They had LSU. They were down six points, a little bit more than two minutes left. They got them in a third and 17 in the middle of the field. LSU had not stopped Texas's offense the entire second half, literally scored on every drive. All they got to do is force a punt, get the ball back. Ellinger's going to take them down. He's going to win the game at the end. And they converted third and 17. In fact, they converted it for a 60-yard touchdown. So just so painful and familiar. That's mm-hmm. something we've seen happen over yeah. the last couple of years, and there's a lot of concern about Orlando's defense. No excitement for the USC-BYU uh, game. Uh, you know, I've, I've just heard that you know maybe USC's a little better than everyone thought. Yeah, They're well, off to a reasonable start. Well, what happened they is they beat Stanford. They right? beat Stanford handily, and they did it with a brand-new quarterback. And so they've got this super interesting story developing out there. JT Daniels, the sophomore who started last year as a freshman, went down to injury. They bring in number two. Their number two guy was a guy completely unheralded, a three-star recruit out of Arizona or something, but he'd been working with Kurt Warner. He comes in, wins the backup contest among some highly lauded guys. In fact, one of them transfers, or at least threatened to transfer afterwards. He gets his first start since Daniels had gone down and 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 plays lights out. And so there is now optimism for Clay Helton's regime in USC. Brigham Young's a, a decent team. They went out and beat Tennessee in Knoxville That's last correct. week. That's right, after losing to Utah in the beginning. So that is an interesting game. Good West Coast game. It's in Utah, and the line there is four points, I think. I think USC's favorite by four. We have Massey Peabody has the line very similar. Fellas, before we talk about the pro slate for the weekend, we had some serious tennis not too far from here. What I know Bradlow had to have been paying attention. What was your, you know, one kind of win as expected, one didn't go exactly as expected. Look, uh, let me just start with the men's side just quickly. The big three is creaking at the joints as far as the way I would say right now. Medvedev almost got it done. Yeah, but it wasn't even just Medvedev. I told you, I thought, two weeks ago, I predicted on air that Djokovic would not win the tournament because injuries would absolutely derail him, and it's exactly what happened. He Mm -hmm. had shoulder problems and elbow problems, and he may be out for 
a fairly extended period of time, again, with elbow and shoulder issues. Obviously, Federer lost to Dimitrov in the quarterfinals. And so, you know, Federer lost. Doesn't, it's just only the second time in his career he lost to somebody outside the top 50 at a major. So that's creaking a little bit. And let me tell you, Nadal was one or two points away from losing that final to Medvedev. Up two sets and a break, we started to see a little bit of the old Nadal. Mm -hmm. And he just held on. I figured he would hold on just enough. But absolutely on the men's side, I'm going to say I'm going to now give it at most another year okay. to which the big three has this stranglehold. So I think they've won every major for like the last four years now. I don't think that— It's, I, a, good, it's a good over-under for us, Matt. Yeah. One year. At what, at what, One at year. What, how when is the next? Is the, yeah. the, is the four majors? Do we have to four majors or more? I might I take the under on that. I you, might take the under too. I don't uh, know. But here's the problem again. I just want to say, you must beat all three of. Yeah. This is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Federer and Federer and Djokovic went down. Oh, yeah. Nadal was still there, sitting there yeah. waiting. So, um, so that's why I'm going to go for four because there's three of them. Just remember that Paul Anika and our guest a couple of weeks ago, former player, current coach predicted by the end of 2020 would have a non-big three mm -hmm. grand slam. And I'm going to go for 2021, but okay. either way. Then on the women's side, of course, you know, I felt, I, look, I, there's no one that's a bigger admirer of Serena Williams' tennis and maybe her life than I am. And she's now lost her fourth consecutive major final, going for number 24 to tie Margaret Court. And again, um, it's shocking to me because what it sh now shows me is I can't pick which woman is going to be the next great because, you know, Andreescu now beat her. Obviously, Osaka beat her, right. et cetera. But Serena on her best day now, it's not obvious that she's going to win on her soon-to-be 38-year-old best day. And that's what surprised me the most is that it's not obvious there aren't players that have basically she trained a generation of what to do. And I just don't think even on her best day now, she's better than a coin flip wow. against the woman that happens to make it against her in the finals. Okay, well, let's let's talk coin flip. Since in this part of the year, we don't do a formal over-under segment because we start talking about games. We start picking games. But we can still sprinkle some over-unders in. So I'll give you one. 0 0.5 more Grand Slam titles for Serena. Career. Over-under. So I'm going to take the under. I, I don't think she makes it. Wow. I think, possibly, you, I'm, I know this, I'm not going to talk about momentum. She has lost, anybody, she's lost four consecutive major finals. That has to weigh on the greatest player of all time. It just has to weigh on her. Plus, I'm going to factor in injuries. I don't know how much longer she can even play at this high level. I would say at most, she'll have next year as her legitimate years. So she has four. I'm predicting under, but don't think wow. of the nominators being she's got 20 more chances. Yeah. I think she has four more chances, and I don't think she's going to get any of them. What about what about the movie? In the movie version, she may not get any of the next four, but then like two and a half years from now, she's like the The Tiger Woods Redux seed. story yeah, or exactly. something like that? Yeah, and she, and she probably does it at the U.S. Open, like uh, Jimmy Connors... You no, know? Jimmy Connors didn't win. Jimmy Connors <laughs> made it to the I'm semifinals. I'm taking over. I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled by this Hollywood story. Yes. I want this to happen. It's well, all about narrative. No, but here's the thing. Again, to win a major, let me just say, I, she has to. it's different. 
she have to win seven matches. Yeah. And so what I'm not confident about is that she can win seven matches. So I mean, just I'll, just, I'll just point out she's been to four straight still Grand Slam <laughs> That's finals. <impressive>. So <laughs> she's she she's able to get there. It's just somehow she's she not has been to not four been straight. Able. She's not been to four straight finals. She's lost her last four oh, consecutive sorry, Grand sorry, Slam sorry. finals, sorry. but she's not been to four consecutive. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. I see. Okay. All but right, still fellas. point well taken. Being yeah. the second best player at four of the last six or seven majors. Uh, not bad. Not bad. Not bad. All right, we are coming around the final turn and heading to the home stretch. Omaha! Omaha! Wants to go to the end zone. He does. Moneyball matchups. That is the most ridiculous setup. Could we could we could do three more matchups if we just cut that back? No. Oh my god. Or extend it. <laughs> All right, Eric, you want to you wanna take the lead? we got a full slate of NFL games this weekend. Well, I'll tell you the one that caught my eye. It's the Revenge Bowl, the Rematch yeah. Bowl. Come on. That's Saints the biggest at game Rams. of the weekend, yeah. Saints at Rams is the biggest game of the weekend. Yeah. And, um, again— It's too bad it's not in New Orleans, to be honest. But... That would be even better. That would be even better. And, by the way, you guys, of course, know that New Orleans got— screwed again by the referees not at the end of the game but at the end at of the half first time. half yep. they lost 15 mm -hmm. seconds on the clock yeah which ended up costing them potentially three points but either way um i i think the better team's going to win this game i thought the Re saints were better last year um i think the saints are better this year i'm not a huge fan of jared goff um, I watched a fair amount of the Rams game this last week he looked extremely average i don't think i'll use your words shane um uh, J Lamar Jackson made every throw a very good pro quarterback should make. Jared Goff makes half the throws a very good wow. pro quarterback should make. Wow. So I think Drew Brees is going to win that game, and I'm taking the Saints over the Rams. I like the Saints. I think they're a better I, team. I, I love this game. Um, I'm really excited for it. I think the Rams are going to win. I think the Rams, you know, the Saints barely won. Against one of, I think, the worst kind of co one, one of the worst coaches in the NFL, and the Rams do not have one of the better coaches in the NFL, um, and they're at home. I'm going to take the Rams. So we, we have uh, we had this as a as about a two and a, as a one point game. So we had, these are three of our two of our top five teams: New Orleans third, the Rams fifth. Because the Rams have home field, we'd make them about a one-point favorite, and in fact, about a two-point, two-and-a-half-point favorite. But that's too close to bet. I'm pulling for the Saints, but I don't have a strong position on this. If I had to pick, I'd pick I'd pick the Rams. Well, which game, Shane, caught your eye other than that one? Uh, Vikings-Packers, I think, is always gonna is always a compelling matchup. Packers and I think are it's... starting the season with two of their three biggest rivals. They start yeah. the Bears, of course. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah. Okay. No, it is. I, I don't know if it's un, uncharacteristic kind of front-loading of the divisional games. But, um, but yeah, so Packers-Bears, I think, will be exciting. I'm, I'm eager to sort of see um, what Aaron Rodgers can kind of do against not perhaps not as good of a defense. Um, and, you know, of course, I, the Vikings always intrigue me because they are, you know, just a very high-variance team. I never know what I'm going to get out of them. So I that's an exciting game. I think... I think it's going to be the Packers um, winning over the Vikings. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I'm going to take the Packers on that one. I'm with you on that. I think they're a fair bit better. We have Minnesota as the seventh best team in the league, and Green Bay we are rather out out, out on right now. 21 in the league. We'll see if Rodgers can do it. Some, you know, obviously with new new offensive coach in there. But we, we'd put it about a, a push, actually, the Green, Green Bay getting a bump from their home field. But the line right now is Green Bay minus three. So we'd jump on Minnesota for that reason. 
Well, the other interesting game is, you know, just, just to get some barometer of how decent they are to me, Kansas City at Oakland. So, you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to pick without the eight points or whatever it is. I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, I'm taking the Raiders. But the Raiders did look good against the Broncos. Um, if I mean, I'm just interested yeah. to see, do yep. the Raiders get blown out or is it a competitive game? Yep. Yeah. Same thing with Seahawks and Steelers. I think that'll give us a lot more information about the Steelers as well, whether they well, can recover. Well, on that front, I'll say the same thing with Cleveland, New York Jets. Yep. So the Jets had a True very enough. disappointing game against the Bills, but the, one of the biggest question marks in the league right now is whether the Browns are going to live up to all their hype. So on Monday night, we get to see them in New York. And I would love nothing better than to see the hometown boys. I'm not usually a big Jets fan, but I'm all about on Monday night. Let's take this Cleveland story even deeper and, and the darker. Titans, that Titans quote by the Titans player was the best quote. You know, it's the famous quote, we are who we thought they were. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That was his quote we after they blew him out like 44 to 13. Well, this is a fun time of year, partly because you're figuring out what the team's are you know later in the season you kind of know what they are and then it depends on who you know what version of them shows up that day but right now we don't even know what they are and we get news on that every game that we and i'm sure see. all of us will be watching the buccaneers at panthers on thursday oh, night of course <laughs> marquee matchup <laughs> all right guys that's been another two hours another wharton moneyball we do this every wednesday morning 8 to 10 a.m eastern you guys come back and join us for the whole team here for Roddy weiner who's in the classroom shane jensen to my right eric bradlow to my left, this has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Matty Datz, the boss man. Big thanks to Marty Nawaga, our sound engineer. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.